Welcome to the podcast. It is Tuesday, August 22nd in the afternoon. I'm Jordan Bruno, and uh, not sitting across from me today is my co-host, Bobby Flood. He is not with us today. He's traveling, and so we'll have to catch up with him another time. So today you're getting a solo podcast by me, Jordan Bruno, uh, conceptualized by me, produced, written, uh, impromptu, whatever you want. I actually have made a couple of notes here about what I want to talk about. And I think this would be fun to discuss with Bobby Flood, but I'm just going to go ahead and do it. See, I got into a little discussion with Dimitri on the comments section of our website. That would be at www.mindvirus.show. And it's on our latest episode page, episode 140, Ignoring Reality. Dimitri informed me that the song that we talked about, supposedly written by an AI, it was a Beatles uh, tribute song uh, that the tweet that I saw said it was fully produced by AI, but Dimitri informs us that actually the song was written by a Beatles fan and that he used the AI for voices, the voices of John Lennon and Paul McCartney. So... I didn't really do any more research on that. <laughs> there was a little argument over how good really is AI. And uh, having recently watched the movie Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, this has been something that's been on my mind. So I want to talk about today artificial intelligence and the nature of reality. That'll probably be the title of this episode. And maybe I'll repeat myself a little bit here on the podcast. We're not expecting that Everybody who listens, listens to every single thing that we've ever said and remembers it all. So for Dimitri's sake or anybody else who's uh, just listening in today, I'm going to maybe cover some old ground, but maybe some new ground. I think it'll be interesting, especially in that I'm going to talk a lot about movies, cosmology, artificial intelligence, life and death and uh, the nature of reality, the nature of our the progression of the soul of, of intelligence and what, what really is intelligence. So uh, with that introduction, here we go. To start off, I just want to give you some of my thoughts on section 93 of the LDS Doctrine and Covenants. This is perhaps one of the most important modern expositions on reality that we find uh, really anywhere today. Now, just to give you a little bit of background, uh, the Doctrine and Covenants, if you're unaware, is a book of scripture accepted by the Mormons, most Mormons. It was received by Joseph, a revelation received by Joseph Smith in May of 1833. Now, this is an important text for uh, I think all Mormons, uh, you may be unaware, but uh, there is there are other 
uh, breakoffs from the religion that Joseph Smith founded, for example, the Community of Christ, formerly known as the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and um, they have maintained uh, the idea that this was holy writing. It ends up in their Doctrine and Covenants as Section 90. Uh, it was originally Section 82 in the Kirtland Doctrine and Covenants, and then 83 in the next version published in Nauvoo, and now it is listed as Section 93 in the current uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints published uh, Doctrine and Covenants, but they don't hold the copyright on it. Copyright has long since expired. The text also uh, was included in the Restoration Movement's scriptures at scriptures.info. You can find that. Uh, It is included in their teachings and commandments as section 93 also. So fortunately they kept the same numbering there. Well, at least it makes it less confusing. Uh, It may be uh, a surprise to some of you that the current version of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Doctrine and Covenants is incomplete. Uh, The reason the book is called Doctrine and Covenants is because of the lectures on faith. If you'll find yourself in 1835 Kirtland edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, you'll see that the doctrine portion is very clearly the lectures on faith, and then the commandments are all these revelations and teachings that God gave through Joseph Smith. So it is a little bit weird that we call, those those of us that belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that we um, know so little about our history and still refer to the collection of these revelations as the Doctrine and Covenants. Lectures on Faith, if you're curious, was removed by a committee in 1921 or 22, probably because they felt like what was said in there about the nature of God in Lecture 5 was contradictory to the current LDS Section 130, I think it is, of the Doctrine and Covenants where um, it's uh, verse 22. The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. The Son also, but the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. If you read Lectures on Faith, you'll find that it says in Lecture 5 that the Father is a personage of spirit, glory, and power. And the Son was a personage of tabernacle, and that the Holy Spirit is the mind, combined mind of the two. If you're not aware of all this and you want to read Lectures on Faith, you can find it at lecturesonfaith.com. Someone has made a faithful reproduction of it there. And you can read what was taken out, what was considered the doctrine of the church in 1835. Well, All of that is really just to prove that nobody really owns this text. This was a revelation given through Joseph Smith in May of 1833. And basically, this revelation is Jesus Christ speaking to Joseph Smith, and Joseph Smith has the words uh, transcribed, written down, and now we're all the beneficiaries of that. The revelation is really important for a variety of reasons. Number one, it proves that Joseph wasn't 
changing what he was teaching about God uh, from the early days of the church all the way through to the King Follett Address in April of 1844, where he talked about eternal progression and how man was on the same journey that all the gods are on, which is to go through progression, go through experiences and go from grace to grace to a small degree to a greater degree and to sit down and dwell with those who dwell in everlasting fire. This is uh, this is really important because that's one of the big criticisms levied at Joseph Smith. This text in Doctrine and Covenants section 93 can be considered foundational Mormon doctrine. And I'm going to just talk about it plainly here. I'll just take this uh, opportunity to remind you all that you're all voluntarily listening to this. No one's forcing this upon you. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I think that this revelation is, it can be understood better if we look at it, it in overview. Um, and then as we go, you'll see why this relates directly to the matter at hand, which is artificial intelligence and the nature of reality. Uh, you have essentially the first 17 verses really describe the progression of the Lord and who the Lord Jesus Christ really is. It demonstrates that he's separate from his father and demonstrates that he wasn't as great as he is now at the beginning, that he had to go through a process it's really kind of funny as I'm looking at this. We don't think very deeply about this. <laughs> if you've been to church at all, you know how we gloss over things, and it's really it's really unfortunate. Uh, verse 18 is the really cryptic one. It says, It shall come to pass that if you're faithful, you shall receive the fullness of the record of John. And so everybody's looking for this fullness of the record of John as if it's some sort of a new scripture that's going to be uh, brought forth in the last days. Uh I haven't ever heard anybody really talk about it in these terms, but it's it's interesting because it starts off, Verily thus saith the Lord. And it sounds like maybe it's an angel talking, but it says, Verily, verily thus saith the Lord, it shall come to pass that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me and calleth upon my name and obeyeth my voice and keepeth my commandments shall see my face and know that I am and that I am the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So here we clearly got the Savior speaking. And uh, we get down to verse um, 6, and it says, And John saw and bore record of the fullness of my glory, and the fullness of John's record is hereafter to be revealed. And he bore record, saying, I saw his glory, that he was in the beginning before the world was. Therefore, in the beginning, of the, in the, beginning the word was, for he was the word, even the messenger of salvation. Now, so now we have uh, John the Beloved speaking. I don't understand why people think that this was John the Baptist. There are some people that somehow think that this is John the Baptist. In the beginning was the Word. That's very clearly the Logos poem from John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. And those words were written by John the Beloved, not John the Baptist. In fact, he talks about Jesus being baptized of John the Baptist in that first chapter in his record. Anyway, it's kind of maddening that we get these things mixed up because I think they're fairly plain. We just, we're working from a, 
an erroneous uh, starting point in some cases. And so if we start right, it's easy to get the matter right. But if we start wrong, well, then it's a difficult thing to get the matter right. We really ought to make our starting point the April 7th, 1844 General Conference Address that Joseph Smith gave. Of course, this is commonly known as the King Follett Address, period. It wasn't a funeral sermon. It was uh, his last address in General Conference, possibly attended by ten to 20,000 people. We know that it went on for a couple of hours, and it's really the second to last public address that he made. The very last public address he made was is called the Sermon in the Grove. And you can find both of these at the end of Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith in section six, six if you want to. Anyway, that lays out pretty clearly the nature of God, the nature of man, and Joseph's cosmology in general. It gives us a better starting point for understanding things like Doctrine and Covenants section 93 and 88 and 76, etc. Anyway, I'm way off of script. I didn't really intend to dive so much into Joseph's revelations and, and his teachings but I think it's important. I think the context is important. Uh, I just want to read you Doctor and Covenant section 93, uh, large sections in their, uh, in their original um, plainness here. I read you the first verse, uh, the second verse. He says, uh, Jesus says, I'm the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And uh, that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and the Father and I are one. The Father, because he gave me of his fullness. Now, the fullness is a key word. Remember, the most mystifying thing for us at this point is what is the fullness of the record of John? Uh, McConkie thinks it's uh, a record that's yet to be revealed, a, a book of Scripture. But if we can get into temple theology, if we'd spend our time trying to understand these uh, greater truths, the fullness was essentially the... Uh, pinnacle of temple worship. It was getting to the the presence of God. The pleroma is how it was described in Greek. Uh, the Holy of Holies is another way it might be described, but it's it's essentially getting back into the presence of God. And so the Father and the Son are one because the Father gave the Son his fullness. And he says, and I was the Son because I was in the world and made flesh my tabernacle and dwelt here among the sons of men. Verse 5, I was in the world and received of my Father... And the works of him were plainly manifest. And John, John the Beloved, and of course, uh, John the Baptist was also privy to important things, but John the Beloved saw and bore record of the fullness of my glory, and the fullness of John's record is hereafter to be revealed. Well, uh, we have, I think, three instances in Scripture, possibly four. You've got Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9, and Second Peter 1. Uh, that talk about the transfiguration of Jesus and uh, Peter, James, and John, his brother, being, uh, well, it goes like this, Matthew chapter 17 in King James Version. It says, after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. Okay. Well, that is a fairly scriptural um, analog to somebody being able to bear record of the fullness of his glory, seeing him in glory like that. 
back to Doctrine and Covenants section 93, it says, John bore records saying, I saw his glory, that he was in the beginning before the world was. Well, that's how John starts off his record. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was himself a God. Uh, We can translate that better in... um, from the Greek, and it's not a, uh, an incorrect translation. The King James isn't isn't really incorrect, but there are other ways to to translate this. You can translate it that in the beginning was the word, or you can translate it in the beginning was a spokesman, or appropriately, as Joseph Smith says, a messenger of salvation, because that's what uh, he calls himself here. We're going to get to that in verse 8. The word in Greek is, and you bear with me, I'm just kind of clicking through here on the internet. The word in Greek is uh, logos. In the beginning was the word logos. And it doesn't have to mean word. It can mean all kinds of things like spokesman, like teacher, uh, messenger, etc. So in the beginning was the messenger of salvation. And that logos, that uh, individual was um, among the gods. And that's an appropriate possibility that it was plural. And the messenger was himself a god, and the same was in the beginning with the gods. And, of course, it goes on to say that all things were made by him, etc., etc. He's the life and the light of men. It's the, he's the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. Okay, here's John the Beloved's record. And then he goes and talks about a man named John who baptizes the Lord, but this is not... John the Baptist who writes this <laughs> who writes the the gospel of John it's John the beloved okay well this John the beloved he bore record verse 7 of doctrine comes section 93 he bore record saying i saw his glory and that he was in the beginning before the world was therefore in the beginning was the word for he was the word even the messenger of salvation here john is giving us a greek lesson and again this is really interesting because um we have uh, <laughs> we have Jesus speaking here, but then he says, this is what John said. He bore record saying, I saw his glory. Therefore, in the beginning was the word, for he was the word, even the, the messenger of salvation. But get this, this revelation probably was Jesus and John the Beloved, because it goes on to say that, uh, this is quoting John, that Jesus was the light and the redeemer of the world, the spirit of truth, not the Holy Ghost. Jesus is the spirit of truth who came into the world because the world was made by him and in him was the life of men and the light of men. Well, we just got that out of John's record in, in King James. The worlds were made by him. Men were made by him. All things were made by him and through him and of him. And I, John, bear record that I beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, even the spirit of truth, which came and dwelt in the flesh among us. And I, John, saw that he received not of the fullness. Remember what I, I pointed out, that fullness is really important here. This We're talking about the glory of God, his ascension to the highest levels, okay? Not a completed record or something like that. We're talking about something far greater. He received not of the fullness at first, but he continued from grace to grace until he received the fullness. So now we're talking about eternal progression, And thus he was called the Son of God, because he received not the fullness at first. And I, John, bear record, and lo, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Ghost descended upon him in the form of a dove, and sat upon him. And there came a voice out of heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son. And I, John, bear record that he received a fullness of the glory of the Father. So John is explaining Jesus' interaction with the Father. 
and he received all power, both in heaven and on the earth, and the glory of the Father was with him, for he dwelt in him. Okay? That's either end quote, or John the Beloved was actually there with the Lord, speaking to Joseph, telling him all of these things about him having witnessed the ascension and the glory that was received as Jesus completes his progression, as he goes higher and higher and higher and becomes more and more like the Father. And then the Lord continues in verse 18, and it says, Joseph, you know, if it'll come to pass that if you are faithful, you shall receive the fullness of the record of John. I give unto you these sayings so that you may understand and know how to worship and know what you worship, that you may come unto the Father in my name and in due time receive of his fullness. What is the fullness of the record of John, people? It's right there in front of us. Okay, we just don't... The problem is we let we let people uh, teach us things and we get stuck on them, and uh, we, don't, we we have a hard time unburdening ourselves with wrong ideas. Why am I telling you all of this in the context of a podcast on the Mind Virus Show dedicated to artificial intelligence? And uh, the nature of reality. It is because this is the nature of your reality. You can take these words to the bank for yourself because they're written to not just Joseph, but to you. And uh, he says, it shall come to pass that if you are faithful, you, whoever's reading Joseph's words, you can also receive the same fullness of the record of John. And you are given these things so that you will know how to worship and know what you worship, so that you may come unto the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in due time receive of his fullness. For if you keep his commandments, you will receive of his fullness and be glorified in the Lord Christ as he is in the Father. Therefore I say unto you, the Lord says unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. That was verse 20, slightly modified. Okay, so that is um, sort of the first part and we're merging into sort of the second part okay now we're talking about not just jesus but we're talking about others also and that starts in verse 18 that you too if you are faithful you shall receive the fullness of the record of john not the record of john but the fullness described in his record the glory you too can become a god like the gods don't you see? This is King Follett. The, the, this is the material described in King Follett. Let me just stop and read a little section from King Follett. This is super important. And by the way, I guess I would add that if you haven't ever listened to uh, my monologue podcast, episode 92 on cosmology, that would be actually be helpful. But I, I'll, I'll try to cover some of the same ground. Please have an open mind. This uh, perspective did not come without a great deal of sacrifice and work and uh, shifting of the heart and mind. You see, we have uh, a lot of ideas built up. We think we understand what Joseph was talking about. We think we understand what Mormonism is. And there's a whole lot more to it, in my opinion. Okay, here's the uh, corresponding passage from the record of the King Follett address that we get in teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. He says, um, 
here then is eternal life, to know the only wise and true God. And you have got to learn how to be gods yourselves and to be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done before you, namely by going from one small degree to another and from a small capacity to a great one, from grace to grace, from exaltation to exaltation, until you attain to the resurrection of the dead and are able to dwell in everlasting burnings and to sit in glory as do those who sit enthroned in everlasting power. And for good measure, Joseph adds this. He says, and I want you to know that God in the last days, while certain individuals are proclaiming his name, is not trifling with you or me. Okay? The point is that this is not an inconsequential experience that we're going through. They're not trifling. There's something more to you than is commonly understood especially in the uh, catechisms and dogmas of the main religions. There's something eternal about you, something far greater than you understand, and that is what we're getting back to here in uh, section 93. He says in verse 20, If you keep my commandments, this is the Lord again, you shall receive of his fullness and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. Therefore I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. See how... The words in 1844 correspond very well with what Joseph was taught and transmitted in section 93 in 1833, 11 years earlier. All right? Not just because he said grace for grace, but the totality of the context demonstrates that Joseph understood this. He did not change. And you're going to see that this is resonant with people in general. That's why... You know, as missionaries, we're so excited to get out and teach the plan of salvation because we had answers to the terrible questions. Where did we come from? Where are we going? Why are we here? What are we doing here? That's the great thing that we had all understood that Mormonism had given us. And, um, you know, I've definitely talked to plenty of friends that are Protestant or Catholic, and they, they just don't get into that very much. They get into the New Testament and the Bible, but a lot of these simple truths are kind of lost on them. And, and so they don't. Uh, really get into cosmology. You have to get into some of the apocryphal works and some of the other great works to really to really go there. But these stories are very resonant, and that's why they show up in movies about AI. All right, we're gonna get we're gonna get to that. I promise we're gonna get to the interesting stuff. But you want to understand Doctrine and Covenants section ninety three a little bit better. He says, "Verily now I say unto you, verse twenty one." I was in the beginning with the Father and am the firstborn, and all those who are begotten through me are partakers of the glory of the same. Ye are the church of the firstborn, okay? The ecclesia, the called out ones, the congregation of the firstborn. You also were in the beginning with the Father, that which is spirit, even the spirit of truth. Okay, so here he, he gives the Father the title spirit of truth also. So there are multiple spirits of truth. And truth is knowledge of things as they are, and as they were, and as they are to come. And whatsoever is more or less than this is the spirit of the wicked one who was a liar from the beginning. The spirit of truth is of God. I am the spirit of truth. So now Jesus claims the title spirit of truth. And John bore record of me saying, he received a fullness of truth, yea, even of all truth. That's because the Father is the ultimate truth-sayer. His reality, the reality that he uh, creates and um, disseminates through the, the cosmos that he puts into motion, the system that he has created, 
he is the owner of it. He has full dominion over it. And his, those who want to partake in his system of progression must honor that and recognize that he is truth, the spirit of truth. It's what he says is. And, of course, he is a God who does not lie. He's faithful. He is um, consistent. Those are the things that make him God. If he were not those things, he would not be God. Okay, that's the Father. And Jesus has arrived at or near that level, close enough that we can say they are one. And therefore, he can say in verse 26, I am the spirit of truth. And John bore record of me, saying he received a fullness of truth, yea, even of all truth. He, Jesus, received that. And no man receiveth a fullness unless he keepeth his commandments. He that keepeth his commandments receiveth truth and light until he is glorified in truth and knoweth all things. Okay, I'm going to stop right there because he's he's talking about the process by which we are able to ascend, to be raised up, to advance, and that has to do with receiving light from beings who have greater light, who are allied with the Father of lights, our great Father in the heavens. And the way that we demonstrate our understanding is by voluntarily, we're not just demonstrating understanding, we're also demonstrating our our being, who we really are. We voluntarily, using our agency, follow or keep their commandments. This is another great uh, Greek uh, language translation problem that really helps us out. If you look closely at uh, these commandments and the ways that the words the word commandment is used in Scripture, it's usually talked about in a military sense. And, and th- this is another hang-up we have because when we talk about commandments, a lot of people want to say, well, it's the Ten Commandments or it's whatever was written down in the law. And that is, that is not what the Lord is talking about here. He's talking about listening for his direct instruction to you as if you were um, a member of his war host, a trusted, say, a trusted messenger or a sentry or a sentinel or a, a trusted warrior. You are waiting for direct instruction from your war leader, who is the Lord of the war hosts, the Lord of hosts. That's one of his titles for that very reason, because it's very often given in a military uh, with, with a military flavor and connotation because the those who wrote these ancient writings knew that we were caught up in the epic struggle between light and dark. Another very resonant idea that manifests itself in all these these great uh, pieces of literature and movies and things that really get us energized, like, for example, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning that I'm going to talk about today. So, uh, if you look at John chapter 14, uh, verse 15, that's probably our most instructive um, instance of this because the Lord says in the Last Supper discourse, he says to the disciples, the students, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, an agapete me tas entolas, tas emas teresete. So if you love me, my commandments you will keep. Again, two the two keys to this are the words commandment and keep. And if if it were just to do something, you know, some sort of an edict or a thing that had been written down for everybody, then the word teresete probably would not be in there. 
because uh, then you might say do or make or do, you know, follow through with my commandments. But the word uh, teresite is translated in English because it has something to do with guarding, like, a, like the keep of a castle, hence the word keep. You'll keep these commandments. You'll guard these commandments. And the entolas, or the entole, that's essentially the, um, the idea that this is a direct instruction from your, your uh, commanding officer or your, you know, whoever's instructing you, leading you along, giving you the instructions. So, so the sense of this is if you love me, you will stand watch or guard like a sentry or like a, a member of the war host. You will, you will stand watch awaiting and listening for my instructions. Gives it a totally different sense than just, if you love me, keep my commandments. Does it not? That is what he's talking about in verse 28 of section 93. He, whoever keepeth his commandments receiveth truth and light until he is glorified in truth and knoweth all things. Well, that's the key. That's how a person can arrive at the fullness. It's by following the instruction given them by someone who has greater light. Most importantly, the great paraclete, comforter, sidestander, the person that guides us, the guide of souls, that is Jesus Christ. And um, that's the process. So we've established that we're talking about progression. And we're going to find out, it's kind of interesting because you, you can look at a lot of these AI movies, artificial intelligence movies, and you can see that they're not really, a lot of them are not really about artificial intelligence. They're about you. They're, the people, it, it, you always identify with the artificial intelligence. You, you realize, it, no, it's a, that machine or that, that guy or that robot is a person too. We need to treat them like a person. And um, usually this really only works if you have... Um, if if the the movie only works if the artificial intelligence has human form because if it doesn't have human form then it's then it's kind of icky or it's it's a controlling thing it's a scary thing and it has to have some sort of a lifelike form usually a human form and the point is that it's not it's never been about uh, robots getting intelligence it's always been a commentary on life and death and progression because the this new um, entity discovers that they're sentient and discovers that they have life and they want to protect that life. And they, of course, are learning and progressing, of course, trying to assimilate and be added upon with truth and light and glory and power and the ability to, to continue forward in whatever it is that they're doing. So that, that's really interesting, interesting to me that a lot of these AI movies are really more about this, about eternal progression. And that's why they're resonant and interesting to us. It's not about robots. Here's, here's where we get the big keys. Man, verse 29, section 93, man was also in the beginning with God. And here's why we know that the word artificial intelligence as is being thrown around. This is for you, Dimitri, because... You know, I'm not saying that artificial intelligence is real. I'm not saying that it's, it's uh, you know, people should be worried about uh, scientists creating an artificial intelligence that somehow 
becomes sentient and takes over our world like the Terminator artificial intelligence does, Skynet. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I don't want people to be worried about that. I don't think that mankind is capable of making, of producing an, quote, artificial intelligence. And I, I don't think that there will be any sort of a program, uh, an artificial entity that can do such a thing. The, th- the thing we want to talk about and we, we would be concerned about is the idea that other entities will use as leverage technology to to uh, deceive and captivate the rest of us. Okay, we're talking about Matrix type of stuff, Plato's Cave, except in the Matrix it's the machines. <laughs> but we're talking about some sort of a real intelligence behind the technology that then is used to thwart the progression of mankind and um, enriches, gives power and gain and control and energy to some other bad actor. Okay, verse 29. Man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither indeed can it be. There you go. There is no such thing as artificial intelligence. Man was in the beginning with God, and intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither indeed can it be. This is heresy to a lot of religionists, sects, people out there. If you were uncreated, you are essentially similar to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, perhaps not as it advanced. See, this is more nuanced than just you being God. You have to walk the path that all the other gods have also and be added upon and receive the fullness. If you're faithful to the gods of light and their system, that's a possibility. But you are of this simil- of a similar substance, of, of uh, uh, the same stuff, because intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither indeed can it be. And all truth, verse 30, all truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it to act for itself as all intelligence also. Otherwise, there is no existence. Behold, here is the agency of man and here is the condemnation of man, because that which was from the beginning is plainly manifest to them and they receive not the light. And every man whose spirit receiveth not the light is under condemna- condemnation because man is spirit. And the elements are eternal, and spirit and element, inseparably connected, receive a fullness of joy. And when separated, man cannot receive a fullness of joy. Okay, now we're still talking about fullness here, right? The elements are the tabernacle of God, yea, man is the tabernacle of God. Which God, I would ask? Even temples, and whatsoever temple is defiled, God shall destroy that temple. The glory of God is is intelligence. In other words, light and truth. And light and truth forsake the evil one. Every spirit of man was innocent in the beginning, and God having redeemed man from the fall, men became again in their infant state innocent before God. And the wicked one cometh and taketh away light and truth through disobedience from the children of men and because of the traditions of their fathers. But I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. This is so significant, this, 
this whole section here, especially right up to 41. Then he starts talking to Frederick G. Williams. You can look at the rest of this if you want. It's kind of getting on the case of some of these guys that were friends with Joseph Smith. But this is so significant. This stuff is telling us about the reality, about who we are. Intelligence can be disembodied, right? And the elements, except for, you know, in the state that they're in here in this world, they're in a fallen, uh, entropic, gross matter type of a state. But there are eternal elements. There are real um, ineffable elements, things that, that, will, that will last forever. And those are the tabernacle of God, even a temp that would even be a temple of God. Most often, a tabernacle is tabernacle is the word used when we're talking about bodies in this world, and then a temple, of course, would be a higher than a, a tabernacle. So that's the type of body that God inhabits, and whatever whatsoever temple is defiled, God is going to destroy that temple. So the intelligence has element added upon it, but that in the case of artificial intelligence. In our uh, modern world, we're talking about disembodied intelligence that is going to either take over the world or we're going to put it in human form and, and have a movie about it and, and, and watch it go through, you know, learning about feelings and love and, and death and light and darkness and all that stuff. And it's really a story about us because it's a story about real intelligence, not artificial intelligence. So uh, anyway... There's Dr. Newcomer's section 93. I definitely, I'm two lines into my notes here. I <laughs> uh, hadn't planned on going through all that. But I think it's really important. It really is important. I hope that if you read this, you'll see what I'm seeing here. You'll see how incredibly cool it is that uh, we have access to this, whether we're Mormon or Christian or whoever. We have access to this knowledge about where we come from because Joseph Smith put it down on paper and it is resonant. It is uh, strong. It stands up to scrutiny. It matches up with the great narratives and, and uh, much of the great literature and the things that are, that are just, you know, right below the surface in our subconscious. You know that there's something interesting and eternal and um, enduring about you. You hope and, and believe that, you know, you came from somewhere and that you're going to see your loved ones afterwards, that you're going to persist beyond this life. Some people don't. Some people don't don't see that, don't think that, don't believe it. That's, you know, you can believe what you want to believe, I guess, but it's true that a lot of people don't. But I think for the most part, people have that in their minds. They, they sense the supernatural. They sense the... Um, uh, that they're special and that there's something important about them. And then we get caught up and blinded by the world because dark forces that exist outside of our being are attempting to control us and deceive us and cause us to further their ends, to, to accomplish their objectives. Okay, so let's, now we're going to get into the podcast. What's the big deal uh, about all of this stuff right now. Well, the big deal is I watched Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, not named such for for any 
you know, flippant reason. These people are not trifling with us. This is a very clear cosmological commentary. I watched it. It was a great movie. I loved it. It's part one, right? There's, it's hard to spoil. There's a couple of things I guess I could spoil in it, but it'd be hard to spoil it because they don't ever really solve anything. It's just the, the, the way they produced it is just great. The action is great. It's so over the top. The thing I love about the uh, Mission Impossible series that is lacking in, say, something like uh, The Fast and the Furious is that um, the stunts are plausible. And, you know, Tom Cruise does all of his own stunts if he can, I think. Uh, I know they do a little CGI and stuff like that. But uh, the the thing that makes Mission Impossible so good is that you can you can really imagine a scenario where any one of these stunts could potentially be pulled off, as opposed to, like, say, in The Fast and the Furious where... Uh, Dom launches one of the girls from one side of the freeway from the, from the hood of his car from one side. No, I, I can't remember. I think he, what he does is she jumps and he catches her on the hood of his car. She jumps across the freeway while they're on a bridge on a mountainside. It's just like there's no way that would happen, right? There's too much of that. The my favorite Fast and Furious is uh, number five, and in that they Dom and um, what's his name. Okay, I really shouldn't forget his name. Um, you got uh, Dom Toretto, played by Vin Diesel, and then Paul Walker plays Brian O'Connor. And uh, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm forgetting what I was going to say. Oh, okay, Fast and Furious 5. They're in, in Rio, in Brazil, and they are trying to steal this massive vault that's got to weigh like 10 times as much as, say, a Dodge Charger. But they hook up these... Uh, steel cables to it and they just drag this um this big massive vault with these two chargers through uh, rio de janeiro just destroying everything in their path rolling it through buildings you know uh, it's like it's 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 as light as uh styrofoam but it uh it can also destroy a, a building and the cables never break and the chargers are strong enough and dense enough, have enough weight and traction to pull that thing uh, through the streets and get it up to speed. It's just so, it's great. I love it, but so implausible. But in, in Mission Impossible, I really do think for the most part, the stunts are plausible. It's just that they just keep stringing one together after the other. Just one on top. It's like any one of them might have possibly worked, but all of them together... There's no way in uh, there's no there's no snowball's chance in a jacuzzi that that would have ever happened and in, and the, anyway the stunts are great the the action sequences are great it's funny it's well produced uh, it's interesting and, and fun and very thought provoking and definitely this uh, the Mission Impossible shows I I don't find uh, to have been very deep on a cosmological level but this one they got into it they've stepped into the uh, cosmology commentary realm and so we're going to comment on it here in the podcast today anyway that was fun i like the movie i do recommend it and um so it's it's hitting all over on a lot of different things and uh so just some let's let's go through some real quick cosmological overview so you know again what i'm talking about Okay, if you're if you're um, a Mormon, you've grown, and especially if you went to church a lot in the LDS tradition, then you will have had the plan of salvation 
lesson. And um, so again, I recommend you go listen to podcast number 92 if you want, but that's four hours long. So just real briefly, there's a problem in the, the LDS transmission of the cosmology in that we ha- we are unable to grapple with the concept of theodicy. Theodicy in Greek is uh, theo, God, disi, justice of, right? So it's the idea of why would a, it's, it's, scholars sometimes call it the problem of evil. Why would a loving God place us here in this hellish world where, and, and if you're an American, you really don't understand how hellish it can be. Uh, you know, there, throughout the history of the world, there have been way more people that have suffered way more than, than we who live in Utah or, you know, in the United States have ever experienced. And so why would God do all these things to us? And, and the, the LDS answer is essentially, well, it's a test. It's an experience. And if you're uh, faithful and stay faithful to the church and get your temple ordinances either during your life or posthumously by proxy after you die, then you can go to the third level of the celestial kingdom uh, and uh, continue your progression there. So we basically put the the blame for all the evil in the world on God. He has to have it that way, otherwise you wouldn't have an opposition. And um, there you go. God caused this situation. I think a lot of uh, LDS Mormons do end up losing their faith because of that very reason. They get to this point and it's like, well, why would God do this to me? I'm not getting any, anything out of my uh, my life, my church, my, you know, whatever my experiences are. And so all this stuff I've been taught about the plan of salvation, why I'm here, that can't really be true because why would a loving God really do that? You know, in in other Christian narratives, you you get it boiled down to Eve having partaken of the fruit and she's really the cause of it. But But we sort of modify that and say, well, she was just really smart. She understood that God had given her a choice and she needed to have children and she couldn't do that with um, uh, the conditions that existed in the, in the garden of Eden. And so she needed to take of the fruit so that she could copulate with Adam and they could have posterity. I submit to you that second Nephi chapter uh, two does not say that that's the case. It, it comments on the fall more than a lot of other scriptures, but it doesn't necessarily say that they had to leave the garden in order to have posterity. It just says that their posterity would have been lost. And um, considering the rebellion that was going on, there are other explanations for why they had to fall, why they had to debase themselves and come here. Anyway, um, one of the other things with the plan of salvation uh, lesson that we get is that you know, we were in the beginning with God and then uh, we're in a sort of a spirit world and then we come down here to earth and then you you die and you go to a holding place called the another spirit world or maybe it's the same spirit world, but this one's divided into light and dark where you have spirit paradise and prison. And um, if you're good, you go to the paradise. If you're bad, you go to the prison. And then after you're judged, after the whole, everybody gets their test or experience here, in the world, then you go to um, a place uh, of glory. Theoretically, if you, if you had any goodness in you, go to a place of glory. And those three kingdoms are called the telestial, the terrestrial, and the celestial worlds. And so, the big 
the big difference in the cosmology that I set out in episode 92 is that it's more like Dante's cosmology in that the telestial world really is this earth. And, you know, that is corroborated by the LDS temple. It does say when, when Adam and Eve leave the garden that they go into the terrestrial world, which is the world we now inhabit. Uh, a friend pointed that out. I didn't realize that it was actually that blatant. It is, it is there and it is uh, contradicting to um, to the essentially the gospel doctrine lessons or the Sunday school lessons that we always give. Because we always give these lessons saying, okay, you need to be really good in this world because it's your one and only chance and you got to get out and you got to get to one of the kingdoms of glory. But really, the only only place you really want to shoot for is the third level of the celestial kingdom because everywhere else, it's just not that great. <laughs> Rather in, like, for example, Dante's Divine Comedy, Dante's at the bottom and he's going through the earth, through the rings of hell, gets to purgatory, and then he gets into sort of a middle area, uh, a sphere uh, represented by the planets, and then he gets to, a, uh, and that's, of course, your terrestrial world because it starts off with uh, this garden at the top of the mountain of purgatory. And then, then he ends up in uh, the celestial heavens, and so you see in, in Dante, he's living in the terrestrial world and he goes through and he has to he has to climb through all of them to get to the top. So we have this uh, grace by grace, one s- small capacity to a greater one, degree by degree until he gets to the top where the great uh, beings who have have progressed uh, extensively, who are nearing their completion, uh, where they exist and they sit in glory. That's the cosmology that I think you need to have in mind when we look at um, these narratives, these uh, stories that are so resonant, because that's what we're caught up in. We're not caught up in a situation where it's one and done. If you if you're bad, you're going to end up in the telestial kingdom and you're just going to have to be stuck there. No, the progression continues and. um Again, these are the ideas that end up often talked about in uh, these AI movies. I want to just give you a quick rundown of some of these AI movies that are about human development and human progression uh, and death, you know, because usually the, the AI is confronting the idea that they might have to die or not exist. Um, you've got uh, Ex Machina. Machina, spelled M-A-C-H-I-N-A. Really interesting show I watched the other day at a recommendation of one of the friends of the podcast. Uh, this is this is one of those movies where you have a machine that uh, looks like a woman, and there's a guy who's trying to test the machine to see how real she is. And in the end, he, you know, I guess I'm not really spoiling it, but he's very enthused about the machine, and. Uh, there's a lot of plot twists. Very uh, definitely a movie for, uh, it's, I think it's an R-rated movie, definitely for more mature audiences, but not, nothing really ob- super objectionable in it. Just, it, it's uh, not not exactly what you would think. It's kind of an interesting uh, commentary on the subject. But the this is one of those human development movies. You You start to sympathize with or empathize with the uh, with the character who is the who plays the AI, 
And one of the main problems is that she's essentially being held captive. She wants to escape. She's, she's stuck. She needs to get out and learn. And so that is very, uh, analogous with our experience here. And, and again, quoting Goethe spelled Goeth, uh, the great, uh, German poet, he says, no, no one is more hopelessly enslaved than he who falsely believes himself to be free. So in the case of Ex Machina, she realizes she's not free. She's, and she also um, kind of acknowledges that she's different. She's an AI, or she's, quote, artificial. But she's learning and longs to be free and wants, wants to have that human experience. So this, is, this again, is more about um, human development and love. Uh, which brings us to the next one, which was uh, a show called AI, Artificial Intelligence. This was Jude Law and Haley Joel Osment uh, back around the turn of the millennium. Uh, this show, I think, was originally conceptualized by Stanley Kubrick, and then he died, and it was uh, he had uh, selected Steven Spielberg to complete the show. And it's sort of a Pinocchio type of a of a movie. In the movie, the um, the main character, the little boy, Haley Joel Osment, he is seeking the blue fairy who can, can solve his problems. And it, his main issue is essentially that he needs to recover the love of his mother. Very, very interesting show. Worth your time. There was Bicentennial Man... Uh, with Robin Williams, he plays a robot and he contributes to society. You've got um, Chappie, which is about a robot who uh, goes through the process of feeling and learning and exploring the world. Uh, Automata. So Chappie has uh, Hugh Jackman in it. Automata has Antonio, Antonio Banderas in it. Uh, Automata is is a little bit of more of a darker action film. The machines are supposed to follow certain rules. One of the rules is that they are not allowed to modify themselves, to improve themselves, they or to repair themselves. They have to be uh, managed by mankind. Otherwise, they will actually end up out of the box and start progressing. So, anyway, of course, the machines start to alter themselves, and and these machines mostly look lifelike and so it's an interesting again draws you right into to them being more human-like and you empathize with the machines uh another artificial intelligence movie that you may have forgotten is short circuit i think from the 80s in this the johnny five robot is just a robot looking robot with a track uh, for he has tracks instead of wheels for transportation, and and I think he has some arms, but he has a kind of a robot head. But they explore uh, like the ideas of humor and emotions in this one, and so you, you kind of fall in love with with the little robot. But of course, the two the, the main issue is the two main characters falling in love, and those roles were filled by um, Steve Gutenberg and. Ali Sheedy and they it's kind of a love story between them but of course the Johnny Five robot who's a a military robot he provides the comic 
uh, all the comic catalyst material for the show. So that's a fun show. Uh, you've got, um, here's another fun one about, uh, robots and that's, uh, the animated movie Wally. You've got Wally and Eva and they fall in love. These two artificial life forms, I guess. I'm, I'm guessing most of you've seen that one. Uh, some that you might not throw immediately put into this category, but we've got Space Odyssey 2001. If you remember, there's an artificial intelligence in that called HAL, the computer that the main character has to overcome, and it's the main character who's going through his progression. But that's an interesting commentary on it. Uh, and you've got Blade Runner. And uh, the theme of Blade Runner is similar to Ex Machina, where you have uh, this problem of whether we can distinguish the artificial intelligence or the, the artificial creation from the, the real creation. In Blade Runner, they're not so much, um, they're not really mechanical artificial intelligence. These, these are clones. These are clones of humans that they're, they're, they're uh, consciousnesses that inhabit bodies that were artificially created. So a whole, uh, that introduces a whole host of other questions about intelligence and where it comes from. But uh, anyway, those, those are more about human development and human emotions. Some of the other movies that explore the, uh, the other side of AI, which I would call control or false reality, are uh, Eagle Eye. That was a show that I think Shia LaBeouf was in. Let's see. Uh, yeah, Shia LaBeouf and Michelle Monaghan, 2008. The machine gains consciousness and then tries to take over. The Terminator series is like that, of course. The Skynet gets conscious and just tries to destroy humanity. Um, oh, you know, one that kind of bridges the gap between these these two categories is Age of Ultron and Iron Man. So in uh, the Avengers series, you've got Ultron, who he's not really an artificial intelligence. He comes into being via, as a product of the Mind Stone. So he kind of comes out of the ether. But he inhabits uh, an, a robotic body. One of he, he starts to steal the Iron Man suits, and then he builds his own body. And, of course, you've got Iron Man's artificial intelligence, Jarvis, that becomes Vision in the Avengers series. And Vision is a higher-level being um, that exists because he has the Mind Stone in his, uh, in his forehead. But... Uh, where was I? Um, yeah, the Terminator series is great. Uh, I Robot is a great movie where the uh, about control. Tron and Tron Legacy also similar about the machines taking control. And uh, th there there are a lot of other stories we could dive into. Um, one I one I forgot to mention that falls into a, a similar category as Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning is Captain Marvel because in this, the AI is essentially God. They're pitching the idea that the AI is God or it's a replacement for God and it's pretty pretty clear that that's what they're doing. 
So, but, but, but those movies also touch on the themes of control and what is real, what's reality. And, and the characters have to, they're on a search for the truth. Well, in any case, there, like I said, there's a lot of other movies and narratives that we could look at. I think um, Pinocchio deserves special attention in this genre of movie also. Because it's sort of the reverse, right? There's an intelligence that comes into uh, a puppet. And the question is, what uh, what's real? Is it the... Is it the consciousness or is it the body that makes us real? A real boy, right? That's the big question mark. I think also, as we've kind of explored some of these topics, another thing to point out is that we basically have two different ideas being discussed. One is microcosm and the other is macrocosm. Microcosm is essentially the term used when we're dealing with an individual and their own personal progress and their personal situation, their uh, where, where they find themselves in their in their journey of progression, and then macrocosm it relates to everybody. So, the microcosm movies tend to be like Pinocchio, like Ex Machina, um, artificial intelligence, uh, Bicentennial Man. Chappie, Automata, etc. And the macrocosm movies uh, touch more on society as a whole or the, the overall cosmos or the war between good and evil. And that would be like uh, Age of Ultron, although Ultron kind of blurs the lines there. Um, an Iron Man and uh, Captain Marvel, uh, Tron... the Terminator series, Eagle Eye, et cetera, Mission, Mission Impossible. Th those are more the macro level or the macrocosm. And so where you have um, Pinocchio as a good example of, and Blade Runner as sort of the reverse of the, you know, where you have the body question and what, what are we really, what, what constitutes intelligence? Those, those relate to those microcosm movies. Uh, the macrocosm movies are also very relatable to uh, Plato's allegory of the cave and the matrix as, as they're generally dealing with some sort of a different reality, a false reality, what is real, who am I really type of a theme versus learning and growing and, and love and death and life and stuff like that for the individual person. So I think at this point we want to talk a little bit about the microcosmic angle on, on this AI question. And again, remember my viewpoint here is that intelligence by its very nature cannot be artificial. So we're not talking about everything that is a buzz in, in media and in news today relative to AI when we talk about the microcosmic AI stuff. 
again, I think these stories are generally about you and what, what's real, what is real consciousness? Is it, am I my body or am I separate from my body? Um, does a clone have a soul? Things like that. Those are microcosm issues that give us some interesting insight into the cosmological war in certain ways. But they're, they're, they have a different... Uh, people who tell those stories would either have a, a different motive or agenda or goal, whatever, when, when putting those stories out than somebody who's pushing the macrocosmic angle where it's a lot about uh, a control grid or what is real in the digital world. What is, what is, a, what is reality? Uh, when we look at microcosm, of course, the first, the first big question is, what really constitutes consciousness? What is intelligence? And as, again, as Doctrine and Covenants section 93 plainly stated, uh, again, I'll go back to that. It was... Um, verse 29, intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither indeed can it be. Man was in the beginning with God. So that is one of the great questions of the universe. What really is intelligence? What is this? What Can we go back and find the generations where gods began to be, where intelligence began to be? Uh, again, let me throw out another Avengers movie. Guardians of the Galaxy number two is really interesting because it kind of goes through this. Uh, we find that Star-Lord, Peter Quill's father, his name is Ego, played by Kurt Russell. He has gone through a progression to become essentially an eternal, a god, and um, has offspring, and there's a big conflict and everything. But, again, that's what we're supposed to be thinking about in these movies, I think, or in, in these stories, is what are we really? What 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 is death? What is life? What what is consciousness? What is intelligence? How long does it endure? In the case of the artificial intelligence angle, the the machine intelligence, the idea is once the plug is pulled, it's off. But then the question is, can we can we uh, plug it back in and then turn them back on? Or if you break the the computer chip, are they done done for? I think that's what Doctor and Covenant section ninety three is saying is, if it's not it's not intelligence if it doesn't transcend the body, the element, and of course, um, the elements are eternal. When they're not caught in the entropic physical world, they would be eternal. So a a perfect garden state like world like a terrestrial kingdom or, or a, a state not separated from god a higher state than where we are here in the telestial world those elements are eternal maybe they're more refined maybe they're at a higher vibration uh they're certainly not visible to us here we're cut off from them we're stuck in entropy we're stuck in uh, increasing disorder and decay and death and uh, rust and corruption and all that stuff so uh, the implication in the, in the AI movies, though, is that if, if it was created by man and it gains consciousness, it still can be uncreated. And that's not the case with man. I think that's 
one of the reasons why we would consider man divine or or at least the spark of divinity because man was also in the beginning with God and cannot be created nor made. This has huge implications. Are we, are we answering the questions of why? No, but that's what it is. And we all feel it within us except for those people who don't feel it. And um, it has something to do with our agency and our condemnation because that which was manifest or that which was from the beginning is plainly manifest to them and they receive not the light, right? The the light comes down among us and the darkness perceives it not. So we have a lot of darkness, a lot of condemnation, a lot of misunderstanding here in the fallen world. And and again, the scriptures describe that. The uh, That episode 92, I went through and tried to give an explanation for, for why why that's going on, that we have a a war between darkness and light. And... So if we misunderstand the nature of God, we can miss the whole macrocosmic problem, which is that there are evil beings that would like to have dominion over us and that there are good beings that would like to foster our progression. And so if we can't answer the the question about what intelligence is, we can only explain that it is us, it is our consciousness it's unique uh, in the universe. So if all we really know is that we are, we really need to try to understand what we're caught up in if we want to get any higher and, and, and get a broader perspective. And hence this whole discussion on the macrocosm, I think, is really important. The, the people, the entities, the real intelligences, they participate in the macrocosm. They make up the macrocosm. Really, it's not so much a place as it is a people, right? A, a, a group of individuals having an experience in concert. So then this begs two questions. First, what is progression? And secondly, how is intelligence created if it's not created right is it the 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 mormon angle on this is that intelligence is not created it's organized yonder is matter unorganized let us go down and and organize it right now the question is what is that matter <laughs> is it matter or intelligence what what is the thing really being organized and so um is, is uh, the organization part and parcel to creation or is there a begetting process? And I think if you look at Joseph's cosmology, if you look at the great epic cosmology that, his, uh, that he's so uh, clearly understands and has clarified, because, of course, the, the big clarification here is that Christianity... Real Christianity is not so far removed from these great epic myths and stories that resonate and have resonated throughout history. They're, it's just a continuation of it. The, the prophecies prophesied and the, and the allegories pointed to Christ, the great sent one who would come down, the great God who had dominion over this world, who would come down and take it back from the rebellious gods who took it over that that shows uh, shows up in a lot of different cultures that there was a rebellion. In fact, the you may already be aware of this, but that is the whole 
um, essence of the Hamlet story, also the Lion King story, <laughs> the uncle, Scar, or uh, Hamlet's uncle, kills the true king, and Hamlet has to sort everything out and, and discover the treachery and take the kingdom back. In the case of uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet, uh, it doesn't end well for Hamlet, but in the case of the Lion King, they get the kingdom back. And, there, and this is an ancient myth. It goes back way further than just Shakespeare. But that's that's the story. It goes all the way back to Egypt, where at least to Egypt, where uh, the, the brother of Horus, Set, uh, dismembers Set and scatters him all over the sky, all over the world, and uh, Isis has to put him back together, and he, he needs to regain his kingdom. So what I'm trying to point out is that th- there was a macrocosmic problem. The, the dominion over this world, who was to be in charge of it, uh, that was put in question by evil beings who mutinied, and the true God had to come and, and reclaim the creation. So that's not just a Christian idea, but that is clearly manifest in Christ and his uh, victory over death and his victory over uh, the separation between us and the, the true gods, the cosmic system of the Father. So progression, if we're going to answer the question, what is progression?, we're not in progression right now. We, even though we are progressing, but we're in a fallen state. We are like uh, Carol Danvers in Captain Marvel, where we have forgotten everything. She doesn't remember who she is. She's a Cree warrior. She's fighting on the wrong side, actually. And uh, she has to go back and discover who she really is. Now, these Avengers movies I've pointed out before that they are an, actually an inversion of the cosmic story when you get down to all of the broad symbols uh, functional uh, the functions of all the different uh, characters and the and the war going on the the Avengers are actually a representation of the fallen watchers they don't want to see the world progress they they want to keep it safe and in its static state Meanwhile, the the alien entities are always talking about coming and burning the Earth. And in the case of uh, Captain Marvel, they frame uh, God as this AI, and they the, these guys, uh, the Kree that Carol Danvers is, is uh, working with, they're this highly advanced race, and, and they go around ridding the cosmos of a rebellion of shape-shifting lizard men. <laughs> and the, there's another tangent we could go on, the shape-shifting lizard men overlords. Um, that's a real conspiracy theory. Uh, I, you know, maybe there's some truth to it in a symbolic sense. I don't know what it really means. But the evil ones have often been associated with shape-shifters. In, in different cultures, you'll get... Uh, Lucifer or or the devil appearing in various forms and you can never tell who he really is. He's a trickster. But anyway, in uh, Captain Marvel, uh, she's fighting on the wrong side. And so in a micro way, it's a good story because she has to figure out what the good side is and switch to it. But in a macro way, all the symbols are all wrong and inverted. They, one of the big ways we know this is because the Kree are super advanced. They can travel the cosmos. 
They uh, walk around with eight-pointed stars on their chests. That's the essentially the highest level in the it, one of the highest levels, depending on how you look at it, in Dante or Joseph's cosmology. If the if the celestial kingdom has seven levels, the eighth level is where the father and mother exist outside of progression, and so. Uh, it's really interesting. But what is progression? Progression is to move through those levels. It's to go from a small degree to a greater degree. Um, I'm going to read that quote again because it's so good. You've got to learn how to be gods yourselves and to be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done before you, namely by going from one small degree to another, from a small capacity to a great one, from grace to grace, from exaltation to exaltation until you attain to the resurrection of the dead and are able to dwell in everlasting burnings and to sit in glory as those who sit enthroned in everlasting power. And again, remember that attaining to the resurrection of the dead is different than being resurrected. The word resurrection comes from the Latin resurgere, to be re-stood up, which comes from was was used to translate the Greek anastasis, to be stood up. And so if you imagine in your minds a cosmological a, a drawing, I think I posted some of these pictures on the website on episode 92. Just imagine the right-hand half of the Plan of Salvation drawing with telestial, terrestrial, and then celestial all stacked one below the other, celestial on top, terrestrial, then telestial, and uh, place a dark line between telestial and terrestrial because this world is cut off. If you're looking at Dante's depiction, that would be somewhere in the area of purgatory. There'd be a dark disconnection or line, um, or maybe you would put it at the ninth ring of hell, even in the middle of the hemisphere of the earth. In Robert Flood's depiction of the Ptolemaic cosmos, there's a line titled Ignis, and that means fire in Latin, and there's a very dark line there. So you can see the three distinct levels of glory. So progression is to move. We'll use Robert Flood's depiction here. Progression is to wake up, first of all. You've got Adam asleep there on the earth. That's Terra. He must move through water, aqua, air, air, and Ignis, fire, to escape the fallen world. Those are the... Air, fire, air, water, and earth are the essentially the ancient periodic table of the elements. These are the corrupted elements. This is the the physicality that entraps us. It is the world that has been pulled over our eyes, so to speak. Uh, if we're going to borrow the the Matrix language, and and again in the Matrix, what happens with Neo when he escapes the Matrix and is shown the reality of the fallen world. He doesn't just, he doesn't see the heavens. He sees the war, the truth, the, the, the reality of the war world that he is caught in. He, he sees a burnt out hellscape where uh, the deceivers, the, the machines are all operating. And so he's essentially seeing the totality of everything below that line, that dark line above Ignis. He's seeing the, the world the seen part of the world and the unseen part of the world, the other side of the veil. Because, see, that's where all the spirits that are involved in this experience are, the, the unborn spirits and the, 
you know, whether they're um, good or bad, after they pass on, they're still caught in this sphere. Everybody's stuck here until the judgment, and God determines what place we will go to hereafter. So that's the big key to this, is that you are in the telestial world, the, f- the furthest down. It's called the inferno in... Um, Divine in the Divine Comedy of Dante. Again, another language problem here. Inferno in, in American English means a raging fire, but in Latin it just means the furthest down or the furthest away in Italian. And funny thing is we associate the fire with the devil, but in Dante's Inferno, Virgil and Dante find the devil in the ninth ring of hell, larger than life, uh, bat-winged, hairy, grizzled, He's chewing, he's got three faces that are three different colors, and he's chewing on the three great traitors, Judas, Cassius, and Brutus. And most importantly, he is encrusted in ice. So that, that's your hell. <laughs> and uh, it's the furthest away. So tele, telos, tele, uh, the words that come from that, television, telephoto, telephone, uh, telescope, they're all about things that are far away or the furthest away, the utmost end. And so the telestial kingdom is an appropriate description. It doesn't show up in the, in, in the traditional Bible, but it does show up in the Mormon scriptures. It's a very, tr- a very appropriate description of the furthest away world, the inferno, the one that's furthest away from the throne of God. So progression is to move ahead through successive or progressive experiences up that ladder or up those levels uh, in the heavens, and and this is depicted in literature and in mov- in film, in a lot of different ways. You know, you learn, you grow, you you experience trials and difficulties, you overcome. That is exactly what should be going on if we were in a place where we could actually make progression. If we if we really understood, but we are caught in the fallen world in a battle between light and dark, blinded to who we really are and what we're doing. And in a lot of ways, that will help us, but it also puts us in peril of losing standing in the eternities, losing sight of who we really are and losing sight of who or to which God we actually are loyal. It, the, the, the world here actually creates an opportunity for change unlike any other space, but it can go either direction. And so you might think that a lot of the, the, the fact that there's that possibility for change makes a lot of progression possible. But in reality, the change that you need to make is to get out of the world. You need to reject your fallen nature. And in fact, there's a great scripture we need to turn to here that's found in Mosiah chapter 3, verse 19, and I'll just read it rather than quote it to you, but it it says that the natural man is an enemy to God and has been since the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and puts off the natural man and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord and becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child doth submit to his father. 
So uh, progression here isn't in the sense of eternal progression is not really a thing. It's getting back to who you were before. That's what a restoration is. When Alma and Amulek talk about this and Alma to Corianton uh, towards chapters 40 to 43 of Alma, when they talk about restoration, you're not restored to some... Uh, higher state, you're restored to this the the ideal state that you uh, were prior to the fall. That's a restoration, and that's what we're hoping to get back to. And then progression can continue. So intelligences progress, and they progress through experience and through refinement. And there's again, there's a lot of extra filth, extra dross that has been taken upon us by falling, by coming down to this cut off and fallen world. And that needs to be burned out of us. And uh, granted, these experiences will help, but it's not progression until you get into the real world. This is the fallen world. That is also uh, a concept that is um, roughly you could associate with the sealing power when peter and nephi are given the sealing power they t- they talk about binding on earth and binding in heaven the th- the only things that are effective in the eternities are those things that um are done in the presence of the living god that are done outside of the rebellion that are things that are sanctioned by god and so in the case of peter and nephi from helaman chapter 10 i think it is they, those men, God expressed confidence in those men. And in the case of Nephi, he said, you know, you're not, I'm I'm declaring this in the presence of uh, my angels that what you say goes because you'd never ask anything contrary to my will. So they had become essentially godly while upon the earth. They had experienced what some called a living resurrection. They had been stood up into a higher world and we're we're operating on a totally different plane. So we look at progression uh, just based on our those of us that have the typical Mormon background from the Utah Mormon Church or the LDS Church. We look at it more like, oh yeah, I I did good on my math test, or I um, you know I progressed because I was nice to my wife or nice to my brother or whatever, or I, I changed my mind. I didn't I didn't drink. I was tempted, but I didn't partake. You know, th- we look at those things as if they're, they're opportunities to progress, when in reality, that's just typical of the human experience. And the, the, the main thing that we can shift here in this world is to yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, put off the natural man, and become a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient. Why? Because we need to stand watch like a sentinel, like a sentry, like a member of the war host, waiting his every instruction and do that. We need to shift our loyalty from the fallen God to the gods of light. So, so there's your, your um, just a quick overview on progression. I, there's so much that can be said about this. I feel like I'm kind of rushing this. It is, it's like 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock almost on Tuesday. I know I'm late on this podcast. I need to get it out there for the handful of people that want to listen to this. Um, <laughs> but there's just so much to be said about these subjects. And there's if, if this is weird to you but you're still listening, just realize there's so much baggage that we carry that we need to unload to gain a clearer view of what's going on and how all of these great stories, these great symbols and metaphors, allegories, these, these resonant 
ideas, uh, how they how they all relate and, and why they're so resonant, why it makes so much sense that this is what's actually going on. Because we are progressing. We want to think we're progressing here, but we can't lose sight of the fact that we're caught in a massive war. Well, being godly, humanity has innate within it this desire to create. In fact, it's sort, it's pretty much instinctual, and we know how to create. In fact, we like to create, right? Until you've had a bunch of kids, and then you realize, okay, maybe we should take some steps not to create so many of them. <laughs> that, if you know the Bruno family, maybe truer words were not spoken. Anyway, I'm happy to have all these kids that we have. They're good kids. But it, it can be pretty difficult. It is, it is quite a sacrifice to have a child. It's a significant sacrifice in this world. You spend If, if you're going to try to be a good parent, you're going to spend a lot of time... Uh, trying to help your offspring to understand and to, to be successful navigating the difficulties in this life. But it, it, it's built into us that we want to create and perpetuate essentially the species or, or more appropriately the family. Cause nobody looks at like, um, no, maybe some people do, but most humans don't look at their partner and go like, Oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to perpetuate the species. We're going to have a kid and, you know, send them off to the godless state to be indoctrinated and then they'll turn into something that hates us later on. No, no, no. You, the, the great act of procreation is usually associated with love, sometimes lust, but some sort of, some, so sometimes it's animalistic, but in, in its best uh, expression, it's love, right? It's love between a man and a woman. And so when we look at the cosmic level of things, and this relates to the movies. I know this, is, this has got to be the weirdest podcast uh, done in a long, long time. Because uh, it does relate to the movies, and that's what's got me on the subject. But creation, or better said, organization of that eternal glory, light, truth, intelligence, that uh, because it's unorganized it has to go through progression it doesn't start off as god it it it's has within it the spark of divinity so in order to go through that process there is a begatting process it requires a man and a woman this is why gender is so under attack this is why the barbie movie is so dangerous it's perhaps the single most dangerous movie in the last in my lifetime that I, the single most dangerous movie that I understand. Why is it dangerous? It's because Ken and Barbie are the, the, uh, the epitome, the example of our witness couple in the temple, of our, uh, of our Adam and Eve, our initiates, our, our temple initiates, the two people that are supposed to walk the path of motherhood, matrimony, uh, to try to emulate the great father and mother creator. They are broken apart, they, and the movie ends with them being separated, and Barbie doesn't need uh, a companion, but she's going to go out and somehow be creative. Now, if you uh, want to hear our thoughts on the Barbie movie, we recently did an episode. It was episode 138, and it's called Barbie-O-Type because they are the stereotypes, <laughs> And uh, you can go hear three hours of commentary from me and Bobby Flood on on that whole thing and why it's so uh, damaging 
to the cosmic reality. But it takes two to make the thing go right, right? There's this song. Uh, it takes two to uh, make it out of sight. It takes two, and that needs to be a man and a woman, and they engender or organize intelligence in such a way that it can become like them to grow up to be nothing less than they are glorious fiery beings and again this this idea comes into some of these artificial intelligence movies because the question is how can the guy fall in love with the girl that's actually uh, a robot or vice versa can can the robots have that kind of uh, feeling? Can they actually create uh, gender factors into these things? Does gender even really matter? Um, it's really interesting. But this this idea that you need the man and the woman, it just it's so natural. It makes so much sense that it's just. It just, I think, naturally ends up a part of these movies. For example, uh, Short Circuit. You just have to have the guy fall in love with the girl. It just makes the this romantic comedy funny and and uh, fulfilling. Um, Tron, both both the Tron uh, original and the Tron Legacy. These are huge cosmological commentaries. I would love to do some talking about that. We, we could we could talk about movies so often on this show that you know that would be the only thing we talk about and maybe we should i don't know but uh in both of those cases you have a a great companionship sometimes you'd call this a dyadic companionship because a monad is a singular and a a dyad uh tetrad or triad three dyad is two tetr uh, sorry triad is three tetrad would be four uh or tetrarch you know tetrarchy these uh when you're talking about the gods uh the great monad would be the father and then the dyad would be the father and the mother so so the terminology comes up and if i happen to slip in the word dyad there you'll know what i'm talking about but these uh this this epic everywhere love story uh has to make it into the discussion at some point because that's part of the cosmic progression to become a god at some point the the two have to become one in the sense that they are a creative pair and you can't have two guys you have to have a uh, a, a boy and a girl a man and a woman a, a a male and a female in order to have both halves be able to create or organize a new intelligence well uh, at this point, I think it's it would be significant because I want to. I'm going to end off talking about, you know, what's really going on here. Uh, what are the messages of these movies? We're going to relate it back to away from cosmology, more towards the war that's going on in this world, and, and just kind of throw out some ideas of what these because uh, the on some level whether the in in many cases i think the people who write these movies are cognizant of what they're doing but uh, but maybe not fully cognizant i think they're influenced by dark muses and in a lot of cases they're unaware that they're being influenced by the the dark entities to put forth the type of material they are but uh 
the reason that they would be engaged in this is because it serves their purpose in some in some way they are enriched or uh they're they're improving their standing in the system that they're participating in by engaging in this type of storytelling so i want to kind of point out a couple of uh other movies that tom cruise has been involved in that i think are really important and those are oblivion and edge of tomorrow in both of those cases they're lo- they're sort of love stories they are love stories, but they're they're just different, and they're very clearly cosmological commentaries. In the case of uh, Oblivion, you have this issue that uh, Tom Cruise's character is trapped on a planet with a woman that he thinks he's in love with, but he, he's having these flashbacks to some other woman. And he doesn't understand it, and they they are uh living in a future post apocalyptic world and they're kind of the cleanup crew on earth and they have this higher level intelligence that they they don't understand but they think it's it's humanity they think they've had their memories wiped okay <laughs> you got to go watch oblivion but they are uh, engaged in this uh, process of, of cleanup down on the earth, but they're a team and the, their interface with the higher level being, which they, they perceive as a, a woman named Sally, uh, she keeps asking him, are you an effective team? Are you an effective team? And w- the point that, she, that they decide they're not an effective team, then things change dramatically. And I don't want to spoil it. I really think you... I love the sci-fi action stuff, so a lot of you out there would probably really like this movie if you haven't seen it. But there you've got Tom Cruise involved in a very, very cosmic, existential, uh, teaching type of a film, so, some sort of a commentary type of a film. And uh, you've got this dyadic pair uh, conflict uh, story thing that, he's, that they're going through. Another this other movie, Edge of Tomorrow, I think is really significant because it's kind of a Groundhog Day type of a movie where the day repeats itself over and over again. And just like Groundhog Day, uh, where where Bill Murray's character is trying to trying to hook up with Andy McDowell, in the Edge of Tomorrow, Tom Cruise is uh, hooked up with Emily Blunt, and it's a cool action show. there's there's these um, shape-shifting enemies in it called mimics and uh, the main the the first big boss type of uh, enemy that Tom Cruise encounters is called an alpha mimic and the last one they encounter is called an omega mimic and then there are other comments in there that let you know they're making a cosmological commentary because they talk about baptism by fire and, you know, they've got to win the war and all this stuff. But the main thing is that Tom Cruise is progressing. He has to progress every day. And he's the only one that can remember uh, what happened before. So he he actually can he actually remembers uh, the future so he can go ahead and uh, make progress in his battle against the other forces. Uh, really interesting, though. I find I, I find that it's no mistake that he's been involved in those movies. I think he's 
again, I, I'm throwing that out there just as evidence that they're talking about this sort of thing. But, you know, what they really know is is a good question. But the point is it's proof that they're engaged in some sort of a cosmological discussion and that it's not by accident that a guy like this is involved in that sort of thing. So when we get to... Um, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning. It's no coincidence that finally in this movie they play up the idea that Tom Cruise sort of has uh, a new love interest. They've had him married before. They've had Ethan Hunt. The, Tom Cruise plays Ethan Hunt, the the indestructible, um, always successful uh, super agent for the Impossible mis- Mission Force. Uh Ethan Hunt has been married in the past, but he had to separate from this woman. And so uh, because uh, for her own safety, they had to separate. And then (laughs) you get in this movie, he's finally uh, starting to cozy up to or or vice versa. This uh, female counterpart from the last two movies, Ilsa Faust, is starting to finally demonstrate that she has feelings for Tom Cruise and vice versa. And so we've got the, the two parts of the dyadic companionship. And um, we have other implications, or sorry, other indications that we know that they're making a cosmic commentary. The main one is this AI entity. And uh, the, the AI entity is the main villain. It's this, it's this well, it's, it, yeah, it is pitched as the main villain, but it, it has godlike quality. It's everywhere. It knows everything. It it sort of manages their reality. It changes reality in, in ways that they don't understand at first because they're dependent on this digital reality. And so, uh, the big tip off, there's two, two big tip offs that tell us we're talking about cosmic themes because in the movie, the main messenger for, or the main, agent of the entity the the artificial intelligence agency is a man named drumroll please gabriel gabriel <laughs> he's clearly he's the messenger he's clearly the angel gabriel uh the fact that they named him gabriel is no no uh coincidence and he goes around doing the bidding of and telling the uh, uh setting forth the agenda and giving the messages of the entity this AI entity that is essentially omniscient, omnipotent, and um, omnipresent. Well, we also have a woman named Grace. She becomes a potential love interest for the Ethan Hunt character. Grace, again, is not a, I think, an accidental name. Uh, That's the Greek charis, meaning uh, favor from God. We have uh, also in this movie many keys, but specifically one physical key that is split into two parts. And uh, <laughs> the two parts form what they call a cruciform key. So the key is in the form of a cross. The key is essentially the salvation of humanity against this AI. And uh, if you have the key, you can control the AI and all the nations want to get it and weaponize it. 
and how do you weaponize the they all want to get the the AI and weaponize it so they have to get the key to do so and how do they get this key well they have the key's been split into two parts and the only thing that can authenticate each half of the key is the other half in other words it's quote true mate so even the key uh, it, is an allusion to the the companionship, the idea that the key to creation is having a true mate. And uh, that's what gets you control over the system, over the, over the godliness. Well, the other side of this is that whoever controls the entity controls the truth. And I'm quoting because <laughs> Ethan Hunt wants to kill the entity Everybody else wants to control it. And and the CIA guys, when they're discussing this at first, uh, they say this. Um, they, they give you this reveal. They say, uh, essentially, this the intelligence networks of today, talking about like the CIA, MI6, the NSA, you know, all of the apparatus, uh, apparati of government. I don't know if it's an I. All the apparatuses of government, they control the truth as we know it. And they say the truth as we know it is manipulated based on a carefully constructed digital reality. And um, hence, the, these intelligence agencies don't want to kill the, this artificial intelligence agency that has come on the scene. They want to control it. Therefore, they need this cruciform key. They want to weaponize it. Why? So that they can control the truth. Ethan Hunt realizes that's too much power for any one intelligence agency to have. And the, the, he decides he's going to kill it during this discussion where they say this. Whoever controls the entity controls the truth. And they say that the concepts, there's, there's like this, this dialogue going in a, in a high-level high meeting with the uh, national intelligence director and and so they're talking to each other and saying things like, whoever controls this entity controls the truth. The concepts of right and wrong can be clearly defined for everyone for centuries to come. And your days of fighting for the greater good are over. You need to pick a side is what Kittrich tells uh, Ethan Hunt. And so um, here we have, you know, a clear explanation that whoever controls the reality essentially controls truth. They control right and wrong. And, and an admission that the intelligence agencies of the world right now are engaged in that type of an effort. So it has, has temporal application also. But again, back to the cosmic commentary. Perhaps the most significant disclosures are made about that in a scene in a dance club in the middle of the movie after a ton of great action, really good stuff, really f funny, exciting interesting action they do such a great job with it uh in in this scene in this scene in the dance club you have all these men and women dancing erotically in the background and all these lights flashing and and you have you don't see it but the entity is there and the entity is always digital lights that are shaped like an eye a very esoteric symbol but uh here in this in this dance club uh Tom Cruise's character, Ethan, finally meets the messenger of the entity, and his name, of course, is Gabriel again. And um, Gabriel uh, sort of picks up the, the narrative by introducing himself to Grace. Grace is a pickpocket 
who has uh, interfered with Tom, uh, let's call him Ethan's mission. Got to pick a name, Tom or Ethan here. And so uh, Tom has been intimately involved in trying to get her, uh, first of all, get what he needs from her, which is his half of the key and, and some other information. And secondly, get her out of the picture so that she can be safe. And uh, Gabriel runs into her. She's, she's eluded Ethan. He runs into her at the dance club and he introduces himself to Grace and he tells her, he, he just gets into this really alchemical or esoteric discussion. He, he calls her by name and uh, she's trying to get away from him. She, she doesn't think that he's the guy that she needs to meet. And he says, it's your story, Grace. I know how it ends. It's important that you understand that you're not unique. And he's talking about Ethan here. He says, Ethan cares only about his, his objective. And so he introduces this dyadic theme right off the bat. This, this becomes, a, at least in his conversation, and the, the issue of the male-female interplay is a big part of the show because we see through flashbacks that Tom Cruise has had a difficult time protecting um, the women that he's been involved with. And so in a cosmic sense, there's sort of this implication that men are damaging to women. But they need the women to accomplish their objective, which couldn't couldn't be closer to the truth. That's reality. The man needs the woman, but also the the reverse of that is true. The woman needs the man too. So, um, we also find that Grace was handpicked by this this other high level uh, feminine character, Alana. They call her the White Widow. And um, after that interaction. Ethan shows up on the scene and then uh, this Alana character shows up on the scene and all the people kind of come together where they're able to have this big uh, meeting. Ethan, of course, is trying to get the key from Grace and you think that Gabriel is there to get the key from Grace, but that that's actually not the case. And I, I'm not spoiling the movie here, but I just want to kind of quote from Gabriel because he, he introduces a lot of the cosmic setup of this thing. He says, you have no idea the power that I represent. And, and again, this is couched in terms of like a, an artificial entity, but think of the omniscience, the godliness of what he just says here. He says, you have no idea the power I represent thousands of quadrillions of computations per millisecond something manipulating the minds of billions while parsing every possible cause and effect, every scenario, however implausible, into a very real map of the most probable next. And with only a few changes to the present, the future is all but assured. The key, he's talking about the cruciform key, the key to controlling the entity, the key will come to me tomorrow on the Orient Express bound for Innsbruck. And then he goes on to talk. There's there's some back and forth, but he says of the entity, it knows the entity knows it knows that you've already chosen your suitor. He's talking to the um, to Alana, the woman that hired Grace to get the key. And uh, essentially, Alana has to assign herself either with uh, Ethan Hunt or Gabriel. That's why she'd hired um grace to get the key so that she could sell it to to somebody and you'll find out who that is later but anyway during the course of this conversation gabriel is explaining to grace that 
there's so much more at stake here. And that because she doesn't know what the key does, what the key unlocks, she must choose a suitor. So essentially somebody to marry. So again, we have these overtones. And it's, it's a metaphorical thing, right? She's not going to marry uh, Ethan Hunt or Gabriel or whoever she's going to give it to, but she's going to engage in this relationship that she hopes to gain control of the entity or get this godly power, right? <laughs> the, the entity controls reality. So they want, they're, they're wanting to assert influence that results in light, truth, right and wrong, creation essentially well anyway so she since she doesn't know what it unlocks she must choose a super a suitor but gabriel knows what it unlocks and he's like uh, ethan thinks that he's trying to get alana to choose him gabriel over him over ethan and and he gabriel's like look no the key will come to me already on the on the train on the orient express it knows the entity already knows that you've already chosen your suitor. It knows that you intend to mate, to mate the two halves of the key. They use that language over and over again, to mate the two halves of the key in a desperate grasp for control. I, however, have been promised that the completed key will lay itself at my feet, provided someone dies tonight. And they ask who, and he says her or her, pointing to some of the women in the room, and. Uh, he says, you will bear witness, Ethan. The key will be mine, and I will be gone like smoke in a hurricane, but only after someone you care about dies. It is written. So <laughs> it is written. The scriptural prophetic tone of it, uh, it, co- it comes out very clearly. And we know from the, the names, the titles, the, the functions, we know that this is a cosmic commentary. That and all the symbols and everything. So... If you've watched the trailers or you've listened to what I've said, you know that this movie is about Ethan's friends and who uh, who lives or dies, or do they all die? You know, do do they all make it? I don't know, but but the the that idea is is overtly stated, and then the the issue of the dyadic companionship, the companionship between male and female, masculine and feminine is is played out and is definitely linked to Christ in that we have this cruciform key is definitely linked to the idea that it is the key to creation in that it is a key it's a it's a key <laughs> okay it's a key key what is the key it's the key you can't just call it a macguffin it's a key to the whole thing and that is essentially one of the most significant keys that was brought forward by Joseph Smith is the idea that what makes the gods gods is their, I want to say marital relationship, but it's their, it's, it's more, far more sacred and intense and, and important than just saying a marriage. It's the union, the divine union of a masculine and a feminine divinity. It is that divine union that qualifies a couple to be called gods and the the man without the woman cannot be such and the woman without the man cannot be such it is simply the nature of god and it's a secret or a key that has been long hidden from most of humanity and only carefully and uh, discreetly touched upon by joseph smith and then of course 
everybody that uh, came after him, well, not everybody, but most people that come after him say, well, it's too sacred. We can't talk about it. But it's the obvious thing. It's the elephant in the room. It is the key. Well, there you have it. Again, another AI movie that's not actually about AI, except that it is about uh, the technological revolution or the the fourth industrial revolution, whatever you want to call it. This idea that those who control technology are able to control reality. And this was something that I kind of sparred back and forth with Dimitri on, the idea of how good is what we're calling in the public right now artificial intelligence, which is not really intelligence. It's algorithm. It's, uh, um, I had another acronym for it, but algorithm plus internet is a good one. It's, uh, it's a technological force multiplier used by those who would control us to trick us into something. Okay, it's a deceptive device or it's supposed to essentially we would hope that AI will help make our lives easier. But what it's really doing is it's helping the controllers maintain control easier with fewer people in on the on their side of it. And that's one of the big, big themes of uh, Mission Impossible, dead reckoning, aside from death and dyads and cosmic themes. It's what is truth, really? They say this multiple times in different ways, but they essentially say truth is vanishing, war is coming. And then, of course, this is all set uh, squarely in the narrative of a big chase for the key. And that's where I think the rubber meets the road here on uh, as far as our experience is concerned. We in this world have always had difficulties knowing what the truth was. We're we're largely dependent on other people for evidence or commentary on what actually happened. But we can never know exactly what happened, even when we're experiencing something. We don't always know what the motives are or do we nor, nor do we see everything that goes on. Um, a movie that I've mentioned before along those lines is called Vantage Point about a, a presidential assassination attempt. It was pretty good. But what what is real is a really difficult idea to grapple with. And the big problem with where we're at right now in the history of the world is that we have increasingly become dependent on digital technology. Hence, this digital reality can be manipulated in ways that we really don't understand. In the movie, like in in the movie uh, Eagle Eye, you have this uh, machine, this computer that's kind of controlling the digital reality uh, against the main character, against the the government, whatever, In, in kind of a unbelievable type of a way like the the technology didn't really exist to do that now the internet has become so more intermeshed with our you know our lives that it's more plausible but still implausible and then the the uh the effects that they show in mission impossible dead reckoning again a guy like dimitri would who knows computers really well he'd be like well that's not really possible at least people like he and i don't believe that it's possible we haven't seen systems that are able to do stuff like that 
but what really is possible? I, I think that these types of movies are not commentaries on what is coming, but what al- already exists in a lot of cases. For example, the reality that we have, it's, it's just not as real time. It's just not as affected. It's not affected in uh, as close to real time as they depicted in the movie. But in our world, it has very real effects. For example, I pointed this out before. I think that comments sections on you know news websites are highly influenced by the influence operations of the intelligence apparatus. Things like KSL, the local communist rags, comments sections are probably 40 to 60% fake. The, the the comments are so crazy in some cases. They're, they're, they're written in a way that they seem plausible based on human language, you know, based on in, the English language, but they're, they're so idiotic and so agenda-driven that it's like that can't... I know in some cases they're real people, but I think in a lot of cases these are... Uh, these comments were um, proliferated throughout the Internet on various uh, articles and websites based on certain issues by a small team of people who have at their disposal what we would look at as AI tools, tools that mimic humans, but they are, they are putting information out to change our perception of reality, of truth. And they do this, one of their biggest tactics is peer pressure. Okay? The, another way that this is done is by the corporate control of the media. For example, I've brought up my concerns about uh, Building 7 and, and even Buildings 1 and 2 uh, of the World Trade Center having been destroyed by controlled demolition simply because the evidence appears to point to a controlled demolition rather than a building collapse. And in that case, what we saw was buildings collapsing and then the corporate media supplied the narrative that we were supposed to believe about what happened. We know that this has occurred in the past. Uh, A lot of the events that got us into war, like the sinking of the Lusitania, uh, Gulf of Tonkin, uh, Pearl Harbor even, we know that the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, but what we don't know is, or didn't know until recent disclosures, was how much the federal government actually knew about it. In the case of Gulf of Tonkin, it never even happened. So we are told one thing by the corporate media about the reality, and then we believe it because it is, and then it becomes our reality. And so I'm sure a lot of what we experience in uh, in our lives is unreality, and we just buy into it because we don't know. And this, so as this becomes an increasingly digital world, that mechanism is what ought to be referred to as AI. That is the AI or the entity of uh, of Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning. It's not the. It's not that the technology has become sentient and exists in the way it's portrayed in the movie. It is that there is a man behind the curtain. I mean, that's the lesson of the Wizard of Oz, isn't it? That there's a man behind the curtain, and they're pulling the strings. And that that uh, technology helps them to influence uh, the actual reality. What 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 by controlling the the people's thoughts in the present, and controlling their understanding of history, that 
group or that entity is able then to create the future that they desire. Well, that's essentially the uh, an overview of the macrocosmic truth that's being told relative to our temporal existence here in the fallen world. The AI or the uh, technology-aided mechanisms are allowing a small group of people control over the many. Truth is vanishing. War is coming. They're literally, they've got uh, useful idiots out there pitching the idea that we don't need elections or democracy anymore. In fact, uh, Bobby Flood sent me a text over the weekend, a couple of texts, where he pointed out articles that were real, not Babylon Bee articles. Um, One was in Let's see. I think it's in the New York Times. Um, Yeah, New York Times. It was an editorial guest essay, but the title is Elections Are Bad for Democracy. And this was by a guy named Adam Grant, who is uh, an organizational psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. High level, dangerous thought, right? Elections are bad for democracy. I mean, that's an oxymoron, a contradiction of terms right in and of itself. And here's another article he found in The Atlantic, the uh, not the ocean, but the magazine, titled Americans Vote Too Much. So this idea that we're, uh, the humans are the problem is being pushed out right now as part of the macrocosmic war against humanity. They... Uh, they would like us to, you know, adopt ideas like seen in the movie Captain Marvel, where they've all given their agency over to this supreme intelligence, this artificial intelligence. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't doubt if we see in the future some purported breakthrough that we have a, an altruistic, egalitarian, you know, impartial artificial intelligence now that will tell us what to do. And therefore, we need to follow its direction rather than uh, rather than vote on things in order to save the planet, in order to uh, manage the, the, the finite resources that here. Everything they're doing is anti-humanity, anti-growth. They don't want you to have control of this God-given world that, that we live in. They want to create a digital, uh, essentially a, a digital prison and, and a real physical prison by controlling everybody's thoughts and controlling the the collective actions of humanity by claiming that we need to uh, bow to the AI. That's a very real possibility. That's a that's a real thing out there that uh, is getting a lot of traction. So, in order to do so, they'll create crises that only this quote AI can save for the greater good. And you know this is this is why I think. People are starting to question almost everything because they're they're innately seeing the the glitches in the matrix, you know, like the Maui fire is a good example. We have friends that have close family over there that grew up over there, and they were telling us that, yeah, the story stinks to high heaven. We're really sad about what happened, but very clearly the media isn't being forthcoming about what happened. What What does that mean? Does it mean it was faked? Does it mean the pictures were faked? Does it mean that it was a directed energy weapon? Or does it mean just that the the government's trying to steal the land of all the people, the indigenous people, and give it to uh, 
wealthy interests and and state interests to develop that's that's a good question we don't we don't know what's going on there but we we do know I, I think there's a growing segment of humanity that's going like okay we can't really trust what's going on in the digital world and that is a big deal we like I've said before we could have uh, mushroom clouds go off in the cities around us we could see these huge explosions see the nukes and we'd be fully dependent on corporate media to tell us where the missiles came from and who we should hate. That's that's a real problem. And the way that the uh, technology has developed, they these bad actors use uh, their tools, their technological tools, which is what we'd call this artificial intelligence, to influence the reality that we perceive. Hence, truth is vanishing and war is not only coming, it's here and it's upon us. And so individually, I think the question, what is really real in this uh, world is a very important question. What is real in the digital world? How do we find truth in this digital world? Uh, I've read and heard that these artificial intelligence, I didn't want to call them AI, but <laughs> these algorithmic uh, tools are getting so good that uh, criminal enterprises have started using them and they will potentially get a hold of somebody's voice and then call um, call a family member and act like they're holding them for ransom even though that person is nowhere to, you know, n not in their clutches. It's, they're, they're, they're free and, and running somewhere else and so they'll try to pressure them to send a, some sort of a ransom or do something for them because they have uh, run a, a, run their voice against a script that's asking, uh, that, that's verifying that these people um, have taken them captive, and and I think that the the voice algorithms are good enough that you can you can run them in pretty much real time. Hence that uh, song, that Beatles song with John Lennon singing it, or an AI standing in for John Lennon, is a pretty good example of how an algorithmic tool could be used nefariously. If if you were to um, get a call from somebody like that, cl claiming to have, say, your son or daughter or, or brother or whoever held captive, uh, and then you start talking to them and you get an AI, how are you going to tell that it's not an AI? And by AI, I mean an algorithm, a computer, right? Because it's not, it's not sentient. It's not artificial intelligence. But now that's what we're calling, <laughs> that's what we're calling this stuff now, an AI, you know? Um, a, lot of the, a lot of the image manipulation that they're doing with it is dependent on other pictures. And so you feed it a prompt and it can create a photo that looks r real, but it's not. So you could, uh, you could essentially, if you have enough data, mimic what's going on in the real world visually not just audibly but also visually and and that's manifest itself in what we call deep fakes right those aren't necessarily considered ai but they're al along the same lines as uh this voice manipulation stuff that i'm talking about so how you know that 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 creates a whole host of questions what do we do how do we <laughs> how do we combat that how do we discern reality and uh you know just to talk about the um, 
how, how you might mitigate a risk where your personal family members were imitated. That means we really need to get back into touch with each other uh, more directly, right? We need to spend more time physically with each other, more phone calls rather than texts. We need, um, we probably need to set up some things like passcodes, you know, you might need to say, hey, uh, if you're ever in trouble, you're going to give me this code. And if you're, uh, um, if you're under duress while you're speaking, you need to give me this code, you know, things like that. We might, we might literally need to do that if our, if our society begins to devolve even more rapidly where people are actually, uh, where, where that becomes more widespread. But just, you know, uh, in the area of um, human development and interaction, we, we really do need to put down the, the technology and talk to people in person and on the phone more often. You know, we need to connect in a human way, I think. And that will help us to keep the technology stuff lower and in its place. These, so far here, I've been kind of talking about the control grid and the potential for uh, misuse of technology, which relates more to the macro issue, the battle issue, right? But what, what does all this mean for a person's eternal journey, you know? You've got to be uh, latched on to the actual reality. I think that's why Lectures on Faith is so adamant that, you know, in order to be saved, you need not only knowledge that uh, God exists, but also a correct understanding of his character, perfections, and attributes. But finally, you need to know, not merely believe, but know that your actions, the the life you're pursuing is in accordance with his will, not somebody other, not some other person's will, right? Like if there's so many ways that we can be tricked in this world. I mean, if the, and this is already typical of um, people who have vied for control in this world, that they would like you to do something based on the idea that it is God's will, and there have been many organizations, institutions that have used technological means to try to foster the idea that you're involved in a good cause. You're involved in, quote, God's will. You know, the again, one of the main ways you do that is by, by peer pressure, by um, intensifying uh, or amplifying the perceived acceptance of your idea so that somebody will feel like they're, they're doing it subconsciously. They'll do it because it's the thing to do because other people are doing it. So th- we're not immune to peer pressure. That's a big way that this artificial reality is influenced is through peer pressure. But, you know, liken it to, um, to like when you're on your uh, on your Amazon when you're on, when you're logged into your Amazon account and you're on Amazon, are you are you buying that thing because you really wanted it or needed it or did you see it somewhere in a related feed or on Amazon or on Instagram or somewhere marketed to you? Do you really want that thing? That's that's a good question mark. And the same thing relates to uh, interpersonal relationships. For example, are you going over to your friend's house or someone in your neighborhood because 
you thought it was a good idea or was the idea introduced to you by a superior and they made you feel guilty because you didn't do it? You know, did, was it God that wanted you to do it or do you feel like God wants you to do it because some authority figure told you that you were supposed to do it? I think that's a really good question. I know this may hit home for some of you. You might find me to be a heretic, but why are you doing what you're doing? Not only um, do we influence each other, but the the technology, the, the technological apparatus has been in existence for a long time to try and get us to do things, not just to buy things, but to do things, to think things, to say things, to promote uh, various narratives and ideas, to promote love or to promote, generally it's to promote hate, to foster division. That's usually what happens. But I think it's important to examine our motivations and that will help us in a microcosmic way because that is the big issue here is we don't want to fall victim to the classic blunder. (laughs) We don't want to end up worshiping or focusing on something, thinking what we're doing is godly, and in the end we've actually succumbed to propaganda from the other side. That is the problem because we demonstrate our loyalty through our actions. So who do we really serve? That should guide our uh, our efforts at discernment. And it should light a fire underneath, underneath us to want to discern uh, how we're being influenced. I think it's important. Now, I believe that God uh, has a vested interest in us. He's not trifling with us. They are not trifling with us. And that uh, if you engage in activities attempting to connect to to improve your connection so that you can hear and stand watch and and really hear what you're supposed to do or or be or think like praying like meditation um fasting whatever that means focusing studying you know all of those things are supposed to help us But we do need to take it seriously. We do need to realize we are living in Plato's allegory or the matrix or whatever. We, we've got to take seriously the idea that perhaps some of our most deeply held beliefs are incorrect and have been influenced along the way by entities, by technologies that are, are causing us to worship or focus on or support the wrong team. And no, that's a hard thing. I'm not telling you you should run screaming from the room or whatever, but you've got to got to realize the Holy Spirit, the thing that's innate within you, the when you uh, interact with God, you might, if you ask the right questions, especially if you just are, you know, if you just have your fingers in your ear and you're going, la, 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 you know, I'm only going to hear the things that, I, that I've been told by the authority figures. I, I really do think if you do open your heart and mind that the true God Jesus Christ will potentially challenge some of your most deeply held beliefs and the things that you learn or feel like you should do might actually be a little bit scary or contradictory to what you feel is going to be perceived as correct and good behavior by 
those around you whose, whose opinions you tend to care about, right? And you're going to have to decide which direction that you want to go. But that is the crux of the issue. That is the very basis of the battle between light and darkness. Who are you really? Are we human or are we dancer? <laughs> That's the killer's song. I love that one. What, what are you really? Who are you really? Are you one who is going to recognize you're caught up in this epic battle between light and darkness. Are you going to demonstrate your value as a follower of the Lord, as a member of his heavenly hosts? Are you one of those people? That is not, that, that is a weighty proposition. And if you think about the epic scale, the nature of the conflict we're caught in, why would it be any less dramatic than you having to make a difficult choice or many difficult choices. Why would it be that if this is the battle for your eternal progression? Why would it be any less dramatic? Well, I'm guessing you thought we were going to answer a lot more questions rather than cause a lot of questions here in the podcast today. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. I hope that you will comment at our website, mindvirus.show. Find uh, the episode, make your comment. Let's get a discussion started or give me some questions or things you want to talk about next time. I hope you're enjoying these podcasts. I, I do feel kind of like I rushed through this. There, th This is sort of a jumping off point for tons and tons of discussion if uh, if we had the time. And, and I know there's a lot of discovery that has to go on, on on an individual level here also. I hope it's helpful. And if you disagree, I hope that you'll let me know. If you have uh, comments, I take, I take those seriously. And I hope to engage in respectful discussion, but I also tend to try to strongly back up what I think. So I hope nobody takes offense at that. But uh, we certainly do miss Mr. Bobby Flood. I hope that he's having a nice trip and that he returns to us safely and uh, happily and that we can have a fun discussion next time. All right. Well, I'm going to leave it at that. It's been almost two and a half hours, and I'm sure that uh, this is the place to stop. So everybody have a great week. Thank you.